Good morning, Northwest. Hope you're doing fantastic this morning. Now, we're going to jump into Nehemiah chapter 13. Before I do that, I want to go ahead and I want to pray for us right now, okay? Lord, we, we have some opportunities that we have before us that help us to connect. And Lord, we need that desperately as disciples. We know that the goal is abiding in Christ. And so therefore, we recognize that our pride often gets in the way of us abiding in you to be disciples. So help us to use these things to connect with each other and to spur each other on to love and good deeds. I hope this morning that you'll use Nehemiah chapter 13 as we conclude this book to help us to be reminded and grateful for the mercy that you give to us and also recognize that there is sin and that, Lord, we are tempted to drift to it. Help us, Lord, by the power of your spirit to stay away from it. We love you. We thank you for what you have allowed us to be a part of. We uh, pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up on the East Coast. Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut. Didn't matter what state we lived in. We always went to North Myrtle Beach for vacation. There's a lot of beaches that we passed to get to Myrtle Beach. But it just was that thing where, man, that's where we're going. And I remember growing up. I knew nothing about a riptide, but I always knew about what's called an undertow. Maybe you're familiar with the undertow is what my dad would call it. We'd put our umbrella up in front of the Hartford Motor Inn in North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We'd put our umbrella up. We'd be sitting it right in front of our place that we would always stay at. Dad would tell us, get in the beach, get into the water. Always use this as a reference point. Because the undertow will take you where you don't want to go. So recognize that. Recognize where you are. Always have a home base. And I would sit there and suggest to you that we live, work, and play in an undertow. We live in a culture. We live right now, right here, where we are. In the midst of the two gardens. In an undertow that's trying to bring us away from the things of God. Instead of into the things of God. And so it's radically important that yes, we see an individual like Nehemiah, an ordinary person. But it's radically important that we really see King Jesus who makes it possible for us to follow God. Through the power of the Spirit of God. And so it's incredibly important that we understand that the current that we live in is trying to drag us away. And Nehemiah chapter 13 is going to talk about that today, but just as a quick review, over the past nine weeks, we've taken a look at the God of the universe and what he has done through an individual by the name of Nehemiah. But like I said, Nehemiah is not the hero, the hero of the story, and the hero of the Bible. The focus of the Bible is God himself, who made himself known to us through Jesus Christ. We can ask the question, how many stories are in the Bible? It's one. It's simply one story. That we have sinned against God and God has reconciled us or provided that reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is one story and all of these accounts are bringing us back to that one story. The one story of the Bible. And so when we take a look at Nehemiah, we see the recounting that the walls are being rebuilt. The, the walls have been rebuilt and the temple has been restored and we're able to worship but at the end of the day, it is the God of all things. It is the great God of great peace. 
and great mercy who is the focus of the story. We've learned over the last three weeks, the last nine weeks of a burden. What's, how important is a burden uh, among the people of God? A burden. We've learned the importance of prayer. We've learned the importance of rising above discouragement. Those darts will come. How do we fend them off? We've learned the importance of serving. We've learned the importance of generosity. We've learned the importance of perseverance. We've learned the importance of the word. We've learned the importance of confession. We've learned the importance of the people of God doing the work of God for the glory of God. And we've learned really today what we're going to learn is we're going to learn the dangers of apathy. When we think everything is going great, then all of a sudden, slowly, chips away and apathy jumps in. Our big idea for the entire message series is this. All of these things that I just told you about, all of them bring the people of God together for the glory of God to do the work of God. All of these bring the people of God together for the glory of God to do the work of God. And so my main prayer through this entire message series in the book of Nehemiah has been for the glory of God and for the unity of us as a church family. Chapter 13, we get to jump right into chapter 13 again to take a look at really and appreciate really the mercy and the mercy of God. Under Nehemiah's leadership, the people of Judah had rebuilt Jerusalem's wall. They reestablished the city and its defenses, reaffirmed the people's sense of identity, and then the work is done, and Nehemiah returns back to his original position as the cupbearer in King Artaxerxes' council. So he's going back 800 miles away, back to Persia, and he is the cupbearer. Well, what happens is he finds out that there are some things that are going on, that that's not what he had founded them upon. He had heard that there was neglect of the law, there were abuses by the priests and the Levites. The, 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 the wall was, was intact, but the behavior behind the wall and the attitudes behind the wall were very damaging to the people of God and who God created them to be. This is a cycle of sin that we see throughout the Bible. In the book of Corinthians, the church at Corinth, really, Paul had planted them that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's what he planted them in and on. And 10 years after he had left and had planted that church, what happens? Really, the word Corinthianized means corrupt. They were so corrupt, they had to get two letters to clean up the mess that was going on. Because what had happened is, they had gone away from what they were founded upon. And so it's there for us to recognize that, to say, yes, God, we see these victories that you have given, and we're asking them to be sustained victories for your glory and your name. And so we look in the text, and we can go to all this stuff, and there's many of us that have been to camp or been to the campfire really experiences where we're going to tell God that we're going to do everything. As a matter of fact, for the first time in my adult life, I'm going to camp next week. I'm going to Lake Ann for the first time. I'm pumped about that. I get to be a chaperone up there. Not really excited about that part. <laughs> I have four kids now, four students that are now in the youth group. So Dana and I said, let's just be chaperones. Let's go with them. So we're going to get to go to Lake Ann. But really what happens, really, when we go to these campfire experiences or these week-long experiences of camp, we get fired up and listen what happens, apathy sets in. And we must be really careful, and I hope that Nehemiah 13 will give us a warning of what we don't want to happen when we come off of those experiences or we see God do some great things. 
Yes, it will be a roller coaster, but it does not have to be the vortex at Carowinds. It can be the Scooby-Doo. There's bumps, but it's doable. Listen, here's what we have. Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to pick up things in verse 4. We're going to take a look at the reforms. So here's what's taking place. Nehemiah hears what's going on. He sees really three things that are taking place. And he's going to jump in and he is going to reform them. He's going to call them out and he's going to reform them. And then we're going to take a look at two lessons here at the end when we conclude. Verse 4, here's what it says in Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 4. Now, before this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Here's what's taking place. He is sitting with Artaxerxes 800 miles away in, in Persia. He hears that Tobiah, listen, we don't have to really remember. We've seen him all throughout the text. We've seen him in chapter 4. We've seen him in chapter 6. He is an enemy of the way and things of God. So you have the high priest, his name is Elisha, and he is opening the door to Tobiah to come in. There is a storeroom that they are to be able to store their offerings. That's where the people of God store their offerings. This was to be used for the Levites to be able to carry out their work in the temple. Elisha, the priest, is responsible for carrying out what the law says he's supposed to do. He uses this room, closes it off to the people of, of the Jews, and opens it up to Tobiah, Tobiah and lets him come in and use this. Nehemiah hears this, and let's just say he's not happy as he should be. They're not living by the way of the Lord. How did Tobiah get in that? If you look back in the text in our study, Tobiah married someone that allowed him to have access to get into. We'll cover that in a minute over when we talk about intermarriage. Here's a quote for you. Nehemiah leaves and then we have one of the caretakers of the house of God, the center at which God's people are encouraged, motivated, comforted, corrected, and sent out to live for God, making a house for Tobiah in the middle of the house of God. Clearing out aspects of worship to God in order to make room for a man who subversely works against the things of God. Verse 6, here's where we pick it up. And this is where we find out that Nehemiah hears this and he's getting ready to come on scene. Verse 6, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. After some time, I asked to leave I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, then discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Verse 8, here's what he says. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Nehemiah is mad. The word says he is angry. Let me, let, me, let me just make a very clear point. I want to make it very clear. I want you and I to absolutely hate and detest sin. Our discipleship is at stake if we are not hating sin like we see in this situation. 
Nehemiah, he's upset at the people, but what he's upset with, he's upset with this shortcut that they are entertaining because this shortcut will not allow them to be all God called them to be, and they're not living by the word of God. May we as Northwest decide to confront sin boldly and lovingly for his name's sake and for ours. It's a loving rebuke. They are compromising. There is a materialism issue. And Nehemiah reminds us of Jesus who saw them selling outside the temple. And what did he do? It says he flipped over the temple and said, my house will be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. So let us hate this sin. Uh, here's, here's a quote I want to read to you that really helped me put this in perspective. We all have a tendency over a period of time to grow less and less serious about holiness. We tend to grow lax in our seriousness about holiness. We tend to allow things in our lives that shape us in a way that does not motivate us toward God, but rather pulls us away from God. We have a tendency to allow a lot of things in our lives that are kind of, that are kind of morally neutral, that do not have good effects on us in regard to our relationship with God and our desire to know him and follow him. This is in essence what Nehemiah is, sees, and he's angry about this, and he continues in verse 10. Verse 10 says, I, have, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Verse 11, here it is. It's a bold, bold challenge to us. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. There's the reform. Then all Judah brought the tithe and the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. Verse 13, and I appointed as treasures over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah the, the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, and the son of Zechur, and the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for this service. Here's what we have a place. He's, he's restoring it. He's confronting them. And he's going to restore this place. I'm going to put you where you're going to be. They're going to come and they're going to give their offerings. They're going to be secure. They're going to do what the word tells them to do. That's important. The Levites were not able to do what they were able to do because the leader was not doing what he was do, supposed to be doing. So sometimes in our culture, we have a really difficult time with leadership and we buck up against that. I, I learned a really important lesson. I think here's what Nehemiah is doing. Hey, Elisha, you need to be a leader. You need to lead. The Levites are there to instructed to help us worship God. That's what they're in their place for. So he reorganizes that. But I think what we learn in this situation right now is a beautiful, beautiful example of Nehemiah coming in and recognizing, hey, there is a standard, there is an order right here. There is leadership that needs to be in place. God knows what is best and he uses Nehemiah to reorganize the people to ensure that growth in their faith happens and the work continues and they do not take a shortcut and they do not take a compromise in order to get where God is trying to direct them. Now, reform number two. And I'm going to let you know this, this is probably going to come out really raw 
and honest because I don't know if I've ever been more convicted about the principle that we're getting ready to learn. And I'm just sort of telegraphing the past to you right now. But the reform was the reform of the use of the Sabbath or the principle of the Sabbath and having a day to rest and be in God rather than do things for God. Verse 15 says, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Remember the Ten Commandments. You know, we're to observe the Sabbath and to honor it. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and on wine grapes, on wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not your God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. We might even be able to sit there and say, well, isn't Nehemiah getting a little bit legalistic? But we must understand and recognize what the Bible teaches about having rest. That God, in his sovereignty, created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. The Sabbath was intended to be a protected space in which Israelites could meditate on the Bible. And they could rehearse the mercies of God. They would pause from doing and then instead of doing, they would be. And David spoke on this on April the 29th. Basically, the title of his message was, I have a hard time being because I want to keep doing. And I think that that is a natural drift for you and I. That we just want to do, we want to do, we want to do. And in essence, we stop the being. Here, let me, rest, let me point out something to you. Nehemiah could do all that he could do because he was first in the presence of God being and soaking up and meditating and learning all who God was. We look at him and we say, well, he was a prayer warrior. He was burdened. Listen, it did not happen by doing. It happened by being. And our natural drift or that current is to bring us down this road. Personally, I don't know if I've ever been more convicted in preparing for a message than going over this text right here. I've been incredibly challenged by my family. I've been incredibly challenged by the people that I work with. That there needs to be a day that you set aside to be in the presence of God without any kind of interruption. Without trying to answer an email. Let me give you, let me, let me paint this. Dana is a, is a pharmacist who uh, works one weekend a month. And so one weekend a month, it's been going on for a long time, over 10 years. So one weekend a month, it's dad weekend. It's up to me. I'm doing it. Okay? And so here's what takes place. She goes off to work, works 2 to, 11, two to midnight, Saturday and Sunday. And so sometimes it may be Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. But when it comes to those moments, here's what takes place. Man, I'm like cooking. I'm not going out to eat. I'm feeding kids. I'm doing this. This is a lot when they were younger. But here's the weekend routine. What would take place is I would just do, I would do, I would do, and I would do. And my message was done on Thursday. And man, it was all good. I mean, I fed them. I did everything that I needed to do. I cut the grass. 
And then when she'd come home, I'd have this list of all the things that I had done. Because I just feel like I got this cape on because I'm doing and doing and doing. And here's what took place. When we keep doing and we keep doing and we keep doing, we keep filling up our shoulders with that which we're not supposed to bear. It's impossible for us to keep up with that lifestyle. So instead of, oh, I get to do this, or I get to have this time with kids, or I get to have the message done here, it goes to, I have 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 to. And you get war slam out. Because why? There is no honor of the Sabbath or a time in your week where you set aside. And God, I'm going to focus on the scriptures. I'm going to meditate on them. And I am going to remember the great mercy that you have given in my life. We must, we must come and repent of that and be focused on being in the presence of God, abiding in him. So that when we do, we are doing it through the spirit and not the flesh. There is a tremendous danger when we don't live out like this. Because if we don't, we become enslaved to those things that we do. We become enslaved. Here's a quote I want to read you. When God says, what God says in here about the Sabbath is to remind you because we're dumb. <laughs> Once a week. Stop and just be. Your identity isn't in those things. Your identity is in me. Your identity isn't in what you can accomplish or what you can get done or how you can clean yourself up or whether or not you can do this or whether you cannot do that. Your identity is found in my adopting work in Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. And the God of the universe has created, beginning in the Ten Commandments, created this recognition that we must stop and we must revere him by focusing on him because it'll allow us to accomplish more than we could ever ask or imagine. And not only that, I think it'll help us to be more joyful in doing it. I, uh, I, I have been rebuked on this several times. And so my wife said, uh, let's just try to take Friday as your Sabbath. And so that's what we're trying to do. I encourage you that whatever your schedule is during the week, that you take time during the week to be continually uninterrupted in the presence of King Jesus. We, we won't make a mistake by doing that. Verse 19, it continues. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut. Remember, they were trading on the inside. They were they were on the inside and they were um, doing things they should not be doing on the Sabbath. And so he reformed that and said, we're going to shut the doors at the beginning of the Sabbath and not let that happen by people coming in and going. And they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of the servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Verse 20, here's what the merchants do. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wars lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice a week. So they were pushing the limits. They're like, oh, you know what? We can't do it on the inside. You know what we're going to do? We're going to do it on the outside. Here's what takes place. People from the inside attempted to go on the outside and be away from an opportunity to rest and revere the Sabbath and to honor the scriptures. Verse 21, but I warned them. That's who I hope we will be when we see things that are wrong. And said to them, 
Why do you lodge outside the wall if you do so again? And this is one of my favorite verses. If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I got to be honest with you from an expositional standpoint and uh, diagramming that, I have no idea what to do with that. (laughs) I do know this, that the laying on of hands involves some very, very strong language, not an inappropriate way. I looked at it and I was like, man, it seems like to me that he's just going all Rocky Balboa. I mean, he's seriously, the meaning is, is I will use force if you do not leave. And I believe that it is force that is necessary and permitted, not unbiblical. Verse 22, then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Again, he's making these reforms, and he's just coming to God, making sure he and God are okay. Verse 23 introduces our third reform. This is the third reform that we have. This one is intermarrying. Listen, this is not a racial issue. This is a religious issue. Hear me very clearly. It is not a racial issue. It is a spiritual issue. It is a faith issue. And so here's what's going on. I think the text is very clear. In those days also I saw that Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Well, the the Jews were very passionate about the Hebrew language because that was the way that they they knew about God. So Nehemiah is coming in here. You are intermarrying people who are enemies of God. Your kids are being raised not knowing how to understand the ways of God. They're not understanding the the Hebrew language. They're not going to be able to know God. They're not going to be able to follow God. And here is the danger of what's taking place. And he gets upset at this, not knowing it is those ways. So since they were intermarrying, the kids were being raised without different, with different languages. They were, in essence, one generation from being raised apart from understanding the ways of God. Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them. That's not expletives. That is, God, I want to cause curses based on you to come down upon them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Guys, what in the world are we talking about? Welcome to UFC. There was a a ritual ceremony. There was a ceremony that that would take place. Or it wasn't like he was just walking around grabbing people by the hair and pulling out their hair. That's really not what's going on. I know you're you're very relieved by that but right now. But there was a discipline where there would take place where this actually did happen according to the text. Again, he wasn't just grabbing people. It was more of a formal ceremony. Then he instructs them what to do. Here it goes in the rest of verse 25. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. So he gives them one of the greatest examples he could give them, and that is, I'm telling you about Solomon, King Solomon. It is his temple that we are rebuilding, okay? He's the one who built the temple. He's the one who has it. It was destructed. Now we're coming back to doing this. You remember him. People revere him. We know the, the history. 
And he's telling them right now, this was a sin that he committed. We need not to do that. Verse 27. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah was floored. They were so callous to this and asked them rhetorically, are you serious? Verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat. Therefore, I chased him from me. If the emojis were around, it'd be the face palm right now because here's what's taking place. We already found out that, that Tobiah is in the presence and now we have Sanballat is also in the mix. You understand what's going on? He's 800 miles away. He catches wind of what's taking place. Next thing you know, he has the great enemies of the ways of God, Sanballat and Tobiah, and now they are in and causing doubt to come in and apathy is reigning strong. Verse 29, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Verse 30, thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times in the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for the good. So he doesn't even talk about, when he closes the book down, doesn't talk about the temple or all that he has done. What he's done is, God, I'm here to please you that is, the, that is the privilege and the honor of my life. That's what I'm trying to do, is to please you. Two lessons that I want us to see in our time together, finish our time together. We conclude this chapter with two lessons. Number one, by the power of God, let us hate sin. By the power of God, let us hate sin as Nehemiah had done throughout this whole entire book. 1311, I confronted the officials. 1317, I confronted the nobles. 1321, I warned them. 1325, I confronted them. Nehemiah throughout this whole book demonstrates how much he detests sin. May we be similar. I have something that I want to read to you right now. It's, sin is not fundamentally defect, defeated through the power of self-denial, but through the power of a greater desire. We must always, when we're sitting here recognizing the sin that creeps up in our life, we must recognize and balance out the opportunity to sin based on the promises of God. He is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. But Nehemiah knows the dangers. He recognized the enticements, but he has been impacted by the, the God of the universe. We sit here today and have been in, impacted by the Savior who forgives. Let us have a healthy view of sin and let us Hate it by the power of God. Number two. Number two, here's what it says. By the grace of God, let us take one step today to get off the roller coaster. This is not Disney World. You go to a theme park and you just keep wanting to ride those rides with the big turns and the big drops and all those kinds of things. But we can't live life like on those types of roller coasters. And let me just encourage you right now. We don't have to. We don't have to. By the grace of God, my challenge and my encouragement for you today is really, I just want to sit there and say, going through these nine weeks in the book of Nehemiah and seeing all of the things that Nehemiah was able to do. First, he was being in the presence of God. Then he was doing things for God. But seeing all of this take place, we can rush and sit there and say, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And those of you that are going to camp this week, you're going to come, you're going to come face to face with, man, I'm going to come home and do this, and I'm going to come home and do this, and I'm going to come home and do this. Here's my encouragement to you. Just one thing. That's all I'm asking. It's just one thing. 
here is the one thing right now that I believe will have the greatest impact on all the things that maybe I'm struggling with. And by the grace of God and in the power of God, take that one thing and go after it with everything we've got. It allows us to sit there and say, we're going to go after this, we're going to go after this, we're going to go after this, and it gives us a victory because we're serving a living God who by the Spirit and by His power can deliver us from things that so easily ensnare us. This sin that we get caught up in is not bigger than his, able, his ability to forgive and the power to withstand. Apathy is not the road of a disciple. And we must be very careful that as we see God do some things in our lives, that we don't get too comfortable and let our guard down too quick, that apathy will come in. And if it's in you right now, I'm asking you when we start sinking that you would repent of it. And there's a God in heaven that would forgive you of that. He will. He will do just that. And then I would, I would even encourage you, after you take a look at that one thing, God, what is that one thing that I could attack right now coming off of this study in Nehemiah? What is that one thing? Then I would invite you to tell three people, this is the one thing that I'm asking God to give me victory in and over and the power to do. Tell three people about that. Here's the focus of us being in life together. We, we don't need just pretty you and we, you don't need pretty me. What we need is we need people to be honest with each other. That you know what? This is hard. There are some ups and downs. And I'm asking you and I'm asking me to let's help each other allow the really highs and the really lows to be leveled out. And when they're really high in your life, then I can come alongside you and level them out some by the power and the grace of God. One of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian faith is that our weaknesses edify and encourage one another to greater holiness. I read that again. One of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian faith is that our weaknesses edify and encourage one another to greater holiness. So we are in this together, so let's do this together. Whatever we are going to accomplish in the regards to being disciples who make disciples, let us make sure that we have a realistic picture of what that looks like. It's a long process. It's messy. But it is the command of the church. It's a command of the church, which means everybody in the room that calls themselves a regular attender or a covenant member of Northwest Community Church, it is what we want to thrive at and go after. That is the one goal. So let us be disciples taking one obedient step at a time for the glory of God. Let us schedule time in our day to let the word of God marinate in our souls so that we will remember the mercy of God that's available to us. And then let us together go after and do the work of God after being, but do the work of God for the glory of God and for the fame of God. I love you guys. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open up Nehemiah 13. We've been on a journey, and the journey has been uh, a, a beautiful picture. We recognize what you did in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was able to do the things that he was able to do because of you. Ultimately, God, you get the credit. You are the center. 
There is no one like you. The Bible is completely and 100% about you. Is it about what, it's about what you did. It's about what you will do. It's about who you are. We thank you for giving us Nehemiah, who has characteristics that you want us to adopt. And we know that we get them not by imitating Nehemiah, but by being like you. And God, we recognize that we are like you when we spend time with you. May your word richly dwell in us so that we would quickly recognize our sin and quickly confess our sin. May your word richly dwell in us so that we would recognize the enticements of apathy that draw us away from you. May we stand up against that current of the culture that brings us away from home. You are home. Let us rest in you. Let our residence be in you for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name.